Hi, Eric Goldwine here from the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. A couple announcements before we play the recording of LTCCC's 12th annual reception. First, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, or maybe that's today or yesterday or a month ago, depending on when you're listening to this. Whenever you are, please consider supporting LTCCC's mission to advocate for residents in long-term care by heading to nursinghome411.org slash donate. Again, that's nursinghome411.org slash donate, and we'll have that link in the show notes. Our resources, such as this podcast and our webinars and our data center and our learning center, are all free. But we need your support to keep all these resources going. So again, nursinghome411.org slash donate. Our second announcement. I know the Nursing Home 411 podcast feed has been a bit quiet of late, but we have several episodes in the works that I think you'll really enjoy. So stay tuned, subscribe, and review. Up next is a recording of LTCCC's 12th annual reception. This was an incredible program, one of my favorites since I've been with LTCCC. It featured powerful remarks by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, a beautiful mini-concert from Bridget St. John, and a thought-provoking keynote presentation by Educatorings Carmen Bowman. Video and slides are available at nursinghome411.org slash reception 12. Enjoy. My name is Deborah Trahowski, and I'm president of the board of the LTCCC. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the LTCCC's 12th annual reception. We have a wonderful program planned for this evening. We will have a presentation on culture change practices by Carmen Bowman, a regulator turned educator, as well as a mini concert by Bridget St. John. And of course, we will be honoring Attorney General Letitia James this evening. Ms. James unfortunately has a scheduling conflict and has recorded her remarks, which we will share with you during the program. I would also like to extend a special welcome to Assemblymember Dick Gottfried, who's joining us this evening. I would like to take a few moments to individually acknowledge our generous sponsors. 1199 SEIU United Healthcare Workers East, the Rizzuto Law Firm, AARP New York, Dali and Marino LLP, Sherburn Electronics Inc., the law firm of D.F. Trahowski, Thomas L. Gallivand, ESQ, Grimaldi Young Law Group, LLP, Kath Uncino, David Silva, Janine Ferrari, Marcella Goheen, Sandy Myers, Charlene Harrison, Patricia Files Vosberg, BSN RNGCM, Saboter, Richard Damford, Arlene Germain, Grey Panthers, New York City, Jeanette Sandor, RN, and Martin Petroff, ESQ. A heartfelt thank you to each of you. I now have the privilege of introducing LTCCC's Executive Director, Richard Malat. Richard is the consummate advocate. He works tirelessly truly cares, and through his outstanding efforts, makes a positive difference in the lives of the elderly and disabled. Richard? 
Jeff, thanks so much. That was very generous of you. Um, first of all, I just want to thank everyone for joining us today. I think it'll be a really enjoyable and uh, informative uh, evening. I want to thank Deb so much for her thoughtfulness and her generosity in leadership of the board and our board members. And just a few other thank yous, uh, if I may. Uh, of course, again, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. I wanted to thank on our staff, Eric Goldwine and Haley Cronquist, who really put this program together and made it possible. Casey Chu, our policy intern, who developed the program, which is really beautiful, and we look forward to sharing with you, and it's already up on our website. And um, last, but um, in some ways most, Sarah Rosenberg, who is truly the heart of the organization. And I am uh, very privileged to have worked with her for about 16 or so years now. Uh, so we're going to next, as Deb said, the um, Attorney General unfortunately had a conflict, so she recorded her remarks this evening. I wanted to mention before we play them that we wanted to honor the Attorney General. Um, one, the we've been very fortunate in our state to have a, for many years, a strong AG's office, and particularly one, a Medicaid fraud control unit that um, really is committed to investigating and prosecuting nursing home abuse and neglect. But what in particular inspired me to want to honor uh, Attorney General James for this evening is the report that she came out with last year or her office came out with that one acknowledged um, that there were a lot of deaths going on in nursing homes in New York State that in fact were not being reported. And that was so critical at the time because there were concerns, of course, and the concerns remain that um, there were a uh, there was a lot going on in nursing homes, and we were not privy to what was going on, and a lot of that, unfortunately, was really bad. And so it was extremely valuable for the AG as a leader in New York to be taking that step and exposing, in essence, what was going on. And secondly, that report also identified, which others have, including a report we just came out with last week, that too many nursing homes were not undertaking even the basic infection control requirements that have been part of the nursing home federal rules and state rules for over 30 years, and how vulnerable that left residents. So it was because of that report and because of the changes that that report engendered that we wanted to honor her. And so just one moment, I'm going to share the recording with you all. And there we go. Hopefully this will work. Hello, everyone. It's Letitia James, Attorney General of the State of New York. And I'm thrilled to be with you virtually to celebrate and support the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and especially your executive director, Richard Malott. And I'm grateful that you are honoring me in the Attorney General's office for our work, but I'm even more grateful to you for your work. You devote yourselves to a noble and a necessary cause, to values that are the foundation of any society that calls itself civilized, to a moral teaching as old as human life and enshrined in our philosophy and religion. As scripture says, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. You ensure our seniors are never forsaken, and that means so much. Because I share your cause, and so does my entire staff. The Long-Term Community Care Coalition is the only organization in our state dedicated to protecting 
nursing home residents. And the Office of Attorney General is the only law enforcement agency in New York State with a specific mandate to investigate and prosecute nursing home abuse and neglect. Our Medicaid Fraud Control Unit oversees this work. It is the largest unit within our criminal division, a team of investigators, auditors, prosecutors. And since I've taken office, this team has worked on a number of important cases. In Orange County, our work led to the arrest of five nursing home employees for neglecting a resident. A resident who was bedridden, suffering from dementia. In Buffalo, we brought four nursing home workers to justice for ignoring alarms and sleeping while an elderly resident wandered outdoors in freezing temperatures. And last year at the height of the pandemic, we started a major investigation into COVID deaths in nursing homes. And our report found that the State Department of Health under Governor Cuomo may have undercounted nursing home COVID deaths by half. And that lack of compliance with infection control protocols put residents at increased risk. A report can never return a deceased loved one to their family, but we brought much information to light and can be the start of a renewed effort to do more and protect our seniors during this pandemic. I wanna conclude by saying the Long-Term Community Care Coalition has been our ally in this work. I wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart for fighting and protecting the most vulnerable, fighting for those who built our country, those who sacrificed so much, those whose shoulders we all stand on, those who fought our wars, those who raised us and taught us. Thank you for honoring me, but more important, my office. It means a great deal coming from you. Bless you. That was, um, I thought, very heartfelt. So I hope everyone appreciated that. Again, we were sorry that she wasn't able to join us in person, um, but we were glad to honor her for her work this, um, uh, this year and last year, and of course, in the preceding years. We're going to move on next to our mini concert, which I'm really excited about. Um, Bridget St. John is going to be uh, performing for us. She is a family member that I got to know through a family council that I also got to know and go very fond of. So I'm going to move it, uh, excuse me, I'm going to hand it over to her. But before I do, I just want to mention, um, we have, as Deb said, another special um, attendee today, and that is Assembly Member and Health Committee Chair uh, Dick Gottfried, who has been the leader, uh, bar none, in our state and a leading voice in this country for the rights of residents. And I just wanted to um, just acknowledge that because it has been so important and has really made a difference in the lives of so many people over the years. So thank you for joining. And without further ado, um, Bridget St. John. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, take that back. One further ado, I'm so sorry, is I, I meant to mention that we are, this is going to be closed caption. Of course, it's being recorded, so it'll be available on our website. And also that if you have any questions, please put the questions in the Q&A for our forthcoming speaker. And now, truly without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to Bridget. Thank you, Bridget, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you, Bridget, and um, thank you to the LTCCC. You've um, given me wings in my advocacy on behalf of my husband, I appreciate it. This is um, a song called Mongala Papillon, which is my celebration of butterflies, and this is your celebration, thank you.
je chante et si tu danses, nous sommes contentes tous les deux. Et si tu danses, quand je chante, tous ensemble, quel bonheur. C'est mon galop papillon. La mystique histoire, c'est mon gala papillon, c'est mon gala pour ce soir, mon gala If I sing and if you dance, this could be perfect harmony. And if you dance while I am singing, this could be perfect you and me. C'est mon galop papillon. La musique et la gloire, c'est mon gala papillon, c'est mon gala pour une fois, mon gala. Si je chante et si tu danses, sommes contentes tous les deux. If I sing the fiddles, this could be perfect harmony. C'est mon galop papillon. La musique et l'histoire, c'est mon gala papillon. C'est mon gala pour ce soir. C'est mon gal pour ce soir, mon gal papillon, mon gal papillon.
to end the first of LTCCC's mini um, desk concerts. This is a song called um, Rabbit Hills. It's written by a friend of mine, Michael Chapman.
Where the water meets the trees The long grass turns to sand Bluebirds skip the waves Stones like jewels in your hand Or was it Thank you so much, Bridget. That was just truly beautiful and moving and uh, and really bringing us to tears. I've seen uh, many similar comments in the chat. Again, thank you so much. I now would like to introduce Carmen Bowman to you. Carmen is a consultant, trainer, author, and owner of Educatoring, catering education for compliance and culture change, turning her former role of regulator into educator. Carmen was a Colorado State surveyor, a federal surveyor with CMS Central Office, and has facilitated many national culture change projects as a contractor to CMS and Pioneer Network. She has a master's in healthcare systems with an emphasis in elder care. Carmen co-founded the Colorado Culture Change Coalition, has authored eight culture change workbooks, hosts the monthly webinar, Conversations About Culture Change with Carmen, and is co-editor of the international journal, Activities, Adaptations, and Aging. I am confident that you will find Carmen's presentation on culture change this evening to be informative, inspiring, and thought-provoking. Carmen, welcome. Thank you, Deb, and thank you, everyone. Um, it is truly a privilege, uh, and it's also a privilege to share with you what I've uh, gathered. I think it will really inform you all in your work. Um, you know, the regulations for nursing homes are daunting. And uh, it's just become a part of my life to study them and know what they say. I was a regulator, as you heard, and, and I love showing people uh, some of the really good regulations that are in the regulations. And the more that people know about this, the better. And so um, I called it person-directed culture change practices have risen actually to the level of regulation. And, and I'll show you how in, in my time with you. And there we go. So um, I'm curious if anyone knows what year the new regs came out. We'll do a little trivia here and I'll come back to it in a little bit if someone can help me uh, watch the chat box. And um, we haven't had new regs since 1987, the National Nursing Home Reform Law. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, which went into effect in 91. So it's a big deal to get new regs. So we have new regs. <laughs> new regs and you'll see how new or not so new they are when I when I bring that up again. And I just want to show you in the executive summary what CMS said about having new regs. Um, 
And what they point out is that there's been significant innovations in both resident care and quality assessment practices. Yes. And some of which is enhanced knowledge about individual choice. You'll see a lot about that in the regs. And um, they wanted to update requirements to show support of improved resident quality of life and quality of care. And they reference um, a body of evidence suggesting factors that improve quality of life may also increase rate of improvement in quality and can even have positive business benefits, um, which is kind of interesting. It's actually true, so I'm cool with it, um, but it's interesting that they would add that angle. Many of quality of life improvement changes in the final rule are grounded, yay, in the concepts of person-centered care and culture change. And so not only does this result in quality of life improvement for residents, but also in quality of work life for those working there, which is true, and savings, which is true. I've sort of made it, it's, it's just so happened that I've made setting this culture change movement um, my life's work. And it is absolutely true that when you change institutional culture, uh, that's what we mean by culture change, and you create true home and you create normalcy, that it ends up being more efficient. When you're efficient, there is money to be saved. People wanna live there. Uh, people wanna work there. People, there's not the turnover. Everything is better. In my mind, I like to say culture change is still the answer. And I wanna give a shout out to your state of New York. It's been a hotbed for uh, much of our culture change movement over 20 years. So does anyone know when the <laughs> regs came out I can't see the chat box. I apologize. Were there any guesses, um, Deb or anybody? There was a one person guessed 2019. Okay, good guess. It was actually before then, 2016. So it's kind of interesting to think that the quote new regs are five years old already. But the the last revision was uh, the date you see here, 11 of 17. Uh, other revisions are yet to come. You know, when new regs come out, you, you actually find mistakes and things that need to still be dealt with. Um, and then, of course, COVID happened. So if you want to look this up, I highly recommend having your own. <laughs> I wouldn't say printed copy. It's like 400 pages long. But um, to have it at least either in your uh, computer system or just know where the link is. Now, sometimes you may want to refer to it. It's called the State Operations Manual. And what that means, it's for every state, not just a state. And sometimes it's been known to be Appendix PP, Guidance to Surveyors for Long-Term Care uh, Homes. And I'll, I'll mention more about that word here in a minute. All right, so here we go. There are many definitions uh, in, the, in the new regs. I just wanna highlight one. And uh, I'm glad that CMS has given a right uh, definition for person-centered care. Check this out. Person-centered care means to focus on the resident as the locus of control and support the resident in making their own choices and having control over their daily lives. Isn't that wonderful? I know it doesn't play out everywhere, but I want you to see what good stuff is in the regs, beginning with the definition. I also want to show you, or you know, just, just teach that person-centered care is not the same thing as culture change. Culture change references the culture of a nursing home, which is organizational. We're trying to flatten management. We're trying to give direct caregivers more voice, representing residents and, and even better yet, the residents themselves voice in making more decisions. I'll show you some practices. 
Uh, and therefore, hair is only a part of the culture, which is organizational, I'm sorry, and physical. Sometimes it takes uh, good renovation, but, but it does not require that. And then another level of culture change is personal uh, change, change of heart, change of understanding to put the person first before the institution. The, the, con the, the wording of person-centered care is also actually outdated. The minute <laughs> that CMS defined this and put it in their new regs, it was already outdated. We have moved on to person-directed care. And to be honest, I'm gonna show you we probably all need to talk more about the life people are living. You see, we focus so much on care that often the life someone is living is not thought about or talked about. And so I wanna be an advocate for that. Maybe you can join us. Now under resident rights, um, this is not new that a resident must be treated with respect and dignity. Uh, their quality of life is to be enhanced and each individual, each resident's individuality is supposed to be recognized. Love that. Then what is new is underlined. CMS never said this before. They now say that the nursing home must protect and promote the rights of the resident. And you know, I was a regulator for many years. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I hear something that maybe not everyone hears that is not written. So in between the lines, as they say, I feel like CMS is saying this. Hey, nursing homes, you've been really good at giving the residents a copy of their rights, really good at putting a poster up in the hall, and really good at reviewing one resident right per resident council meeting. However, you haven't been really good at protecting and even promoting the rights of the resident. And you know all the examples, but one of my, you know, I don't know if I would say favorite, but one that comes to mind, you know, if a resident refuses something and, and, we, and we start to realize, oh, they do have the right to do that, but, 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 but we don't know what to do with that. So who do we run and get? <laughs> who represents resident rights? The social worker. So we run and go get the social worker. And one time in my life and somewhere in my career, I realized, why should we have to go and run and get the social worker? Shouldn't we all advocate for resident rights? And yes, we should. In fact, I've been daring nursing homes at culture change conferences to consider giving every single person who works in the nursing home the same title. And the title would be the same one you all have. And that would be advocate. And believe it or not, a home in Illinois did it. I think that speaks volumes that we are all required to, to raise the issue that this resident, this person has a right to do or not do, you know, whatever it is they're, they're wanting to do. So you, if you didn't know that, Nursing homes have a much higher um, requirement here to protect and promote rights. It's so good. And this actually helps teams as well. I do most of my teaching with nursing home teams and they don't know this. You know, so many people just don't, you know, roll around to reading all the regs and, and that's understandable. Um, but when they see this, it starts to empower them to, to you know, and many nursing homes that want to do this to be emboldened to do more of it. Now it also goes on to say residents' wishes and preferences must be considered in the exercise of rights by the representative. And do you hear what's also not written here? Sometimes, no offense to families, we sort of give families too much power too soon. And if you can hear that, what all that means is if, if a family member is mostly 
saying what they want for mom or dad. That's really not quite it. And I just like reminding all of us that we need to kind of reframe it. And all I mean by that is, hey, daughter, what would you say your mom would want regarding her diabetes? How has your mom lived her whole life with her diabetes? What would your mom say her goals are regarding her diabetes? And so um, that too is brand new here in the race. Now, this is also new that residents must or have the right to be informed in advance of risks and benefits of any proposed care. In fact, I'd like you to count how many choice words are in this one sentence. <laughs> so writes the right to be informed of risks and benefits of proposed care of treatment and treatment alternatives or treatment options and to choose the alternative or option he or she prefers. <laughs> There's so many, I lost count. And that is our culture change movement in a nutshell, to be honest. Uh, it seems like in many institutions, we forgot there's pros and cons to everything. There's good and bad risks and benefits. You know, a good example is when someone starts choking or coughing and, and we jump to the puree food, let's say, and most people don't want puree food. It doesn't taste great. And we forgot to say, oh, by the way, if you choose the puree, <laughs> if a choice was even given, right, you probably won't like it and you probably won't eat well and you'll probably lose weight and you'll probably end up dying, but it'll take longer. And, and some people maybe will say, give me the bacon, even though I might choke. And this reg speaks to that. There are lots of treatment options and the person gets to decide. Um, by the way, uh, I've done a lot of work on this. We have something called the dining practice standards where um, 10 clinical standard setting groups agreed upon new standards of practice that basically try to help people eat what they want to eat. And on this example, we learned that, did you know, if, if for instance, if a, if a breast of chicken is baked and then finely cut, Many people do just as well with the finely chopped baked chicken, actually better than with the ground chicken, which gets drier. And that's why we end up pouring lots of gravy on it. Um, and we've also learned that there's a lot of foods that are naturally pureed that we could also be offering as an option to people who maybe do need to eat that and choose to. But it's not like you got to go puree everything. Imagine pureeing your hamburger, <laughs> right? Versus how about some guacamole or refried beans or an egg souffle? There's a lot of foods that are naturally great. So anyway, that is just one little example of, uh, you know, an example of risks and benefits. Then we have, this is somewhat new. This reg used to read the, right, the resident has the right to refuse treatment. And we loved quoting it because it's so strong. And that meant people have the right to refuse that, um, of course, we know meds, right? Or refuse that, that restricted diet that someone else thinks they should eat or refuse, um, let's say an alarm. We never even asked residents if they wanted that noisy alarm. Thankfully, uh, nationally, the alarms are going away. But notice now it, it is actually stronger. They have the right to request, refuse, and even discontinue what they might've requested. So it's even stronger now. Then we move on to a section of resident rights uh, under self-determination. Um, this 
portion is not new. The resident has the right to choose activities, schedules. I'm going to come back to the parentheses in a minute. Healthcare and providers of healthcare consistent with their interests, assessments, and plan of care. So they've always had this since 87, the right to choose. And let's just jump to the main one, schedules. <laughs> how many residents and how many nursing homes across America really have the right to choose their own schedule? That really is the epitome of, of an institution that you live on the institution schedule. Uh, so that's been there. We've been preaching this reg for all these years because it's been embedded in the nursing home reform law. Um, now, CMS did add what is underlined and in the parentheses, including sleeping and waking times. And this is good, this is a good move, although I wish CMS would have done something stronger. And we're gonna talk about sleep here in a moment, but sleep is so important. I had advocated myself for them to consider perhaps a requirement that stood alone, that residents, it, it actually would sort of be more like on the nursing home, that the nursing home has the responsibility to honor sleep per person. And so um, I'm gonna come right back to that after I show you that this is not new either. Residents have the right to make choices about aspects of their life that are significant to them. That has also been there since 87, so strong. They have the right to make choices about things that are significant to them. Would sleep be significant to any of you? I know it would be for me. And then also not new, just wanna show you, the right to interact with members of the community and participate in community activities, both inside and outside. Very strong, very important, very needed. Uh, add a pandemic to that one, right? So I love taking a moment to talk about sleep. When it comes to sleep, what really is true choice? So, you know, what many nursing home teams end up doing is, <laughs> sometimes I have a clipboard around, but they, they, you know, they walk around with their clipboard and they say, now, when would you like to get up? And when would you like to get up? And it's, it's meant well, it, it's choice, right? However, what we've learned is true choice, ready? True choice when it comes to sleep is your body gets to decide. Wouldn't that be great if that was in the regs? And so how many of you, you know, love to let your body decide when to get awakened in the morning? And why are residents even woken up to begin with? It's back to that schedule. One time a CNA happened to be a CNA and a training of mine said, it's the almighty schedule. And, and it's sad to me, like even the breakfast time in probably every nursing home right this minute was not even chosen by the people who actually live there right now. It's probably an arbitrary breakfast time chosen long ago. And sadly, um, we're waking people up very early in the morning. You guys know this. There is no need to even wake someone, period. We, you know, these are older people, retired, that don't have a job to hurry up and go to. <laughs> and of all times in their life, we could be not waking them. We could be honoring their sleep. And notice the sad picture. What are the results of waking people up so often, plus during the night, several times? Um, and the result is what? Falling asleep in my chair. Do you realize that's actually unhealthy? It's not good for your body to fall asleep in a wheelchair or fall asleep like at the table. And now people are going to try to help you eat. You know, depending on that swallowing capability, it could actually be very dangerous. So, you know, it's that hurry up and wait scenario. And how many of you, how many of us would like rather be sleeping? <laughs> now you have this 
wonderful reception annual going on. So maybe you don't want to be sleeping right now. But when I ask people this in a conference, I get many hands and mine is included. I'm not offended that the point is we're not getting enough sleep. And so guess what? We are them. They are us. They were working hard, raising families, two jobs or whatever. And don't they have the right to sleep? And and how many of us wish we could get more sleep? And when we're old, for heaven's sake, let me sleep, right? I've asked people, you know, in trainings, what, what are you going to want to do when you live in the nursing home? And I'm actually talking about engagement. And some people, sure enough, say sleep. <laughs> and it's a legitimate answer, isn't it? My mom used to say, sleep is like medicine, honey. Just go to bed. Whatever ails you, whether it's physical or emotional, It'll be better in the morning. Scripture was just mentioned. It's actually biblical. And I've added to it. Sleep is actually better than medicine. Wouldn't you agree? And so if you think of um, your own life and how wonderful it is to not have to set the alarm. Oh, I just get giddy going to bed when I don't have to set the alarm. Now add to that. What's it like to wake people up? How many of you like to wake people up? <laughs> you know, most of us do not. And now think about what we're asking people who work in nursing homes to do. Come work in a very difficult situation for not enough money, probably, to make a living. And um, sometimes you have to wake people up and they really don't like it. So much so that maybe you might get hurt. You know, and that just happens. A person with dementia maybe isn't understanding what's going on. So it's really not a great recruitment strategy either. And if you soften this institutional environment, if you start honoring, putting the individuals before the institution, like I said, people love that. It will draw people, it'll help us perhaps in a time of uh, staffing crises. And then of course, we all know the benefits of being well-rested, right? You know, if we wanna help people have a better quality of life, be less depressed or anxious, to take in the day by being more alert and having energy, for heaven's sake, you know, I'm not even a nurse or a physician, but we all know the benefits. And, and if you look into it, your, our immune system is built, uh, protein is synthesized, tissues repair, our muscles grow. Really, shouldn't we be helping people to get sleep? <laughs> we're, 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 you know, we're more alert and easier. It's thinking comes easier. Um, I don't like to say behaviors uh, because it's negative toward the person, but what we used to call behaviors they also diminish how many of those are because we're waking people up, not on their, their own circadian rhythm schedule. Certainly people's mood is better. And one of my favorites, I mean, all those are awesome. But if, if falls are an issue, many nursing home teams don't want residents to fall. Of course not. And if I can talk them into doing culture change to prevent falls, I do. And this is one point right here. When you're well rested, it translates into fewer falls. Um, then let's just point out the biggest one. Our bodies heal when we sleep. So why in the world we call ourselves healthcare? Why would we wake people up so much? Um, there are so, so many better outcomes when we don't wake people. Uh, so at, at nighttime, it is actually a very generic institutional practice to check and change everyone on the same schedule which is typically two hours. I like teaching people that is generic care. That is not individualized care. We're supposed to give individualized care. And um, in the morning, what an answer starts to become is what we call open dining, where you have open dining times and you are welcome to come get breakfast between seven and nine. 
you know, I love teaching teams too, that uh, even right now, no matter what the breakfast time is, instead of saying breakfast is at seven, you could just start to say breakfast starts at seven and at least like own, own the probably, let's say one hour that breakfast is served and start to say breakfast is served from seven to eight and then grow at seven to nine. Uh, open dining times become an answer to be able to honor sleep. And then everyone is less rushed. CNAs have more time to actually give good care, you know, to do the extra things that make sure teeth are brushed, hair is combed, maybe lipstick, maybe jewelry, because they don't have to have everyone down there at the very same moment in time, which makes no sense because you can't serve every single person in one dining room, no matter how big or small it is, at the very same time anyway. So everything's better. And it is so wonderful. Okay, moving on. Another resident right. A nursing home um, must consider the views of a resident or family group, act promptly on grievances and recommendations um, of such groups concerning issues of resident care and life in that nursing home. So um, what I love here, everyone, is not everyone realizes that the nursing home is supposed to listen to this group of residents and families and act promptly on both grievances as well as recommendations. It also says they don't have to do every single thing anyone ever asked for. We know that. But I also love to point out where right here, resident care and life are together. And that doesn't happen very often, but it's well done right there. And one of the best culture change practices I'll just briefly tell you about is a community meeting. Um, it comes to us from Barry and Debbie Barkin out of California. They did this in the 70s. They're still teaching it. We actually consider it a culture change practice. And what happens here is that both staff and residents come together every day, every morning, typically for a community meeting. And it's intentional to build community, create connections, explore what is meaningful to this group of people. We gather as a community to discuss things of mutual interest and concern to celebrate, and sometimes, yes, to remember and to mourn. They had a hypothesis that residents could learn and grow when they become in more meaningful um, experiences at all ages. And of course they were right. So it's, it's communally acknowledging and celebrating anything and everything, you know, celebrating that someone's um, back from the hospital or walking again or celebrating birthdays, not only staff, I mean, resident birthdays, but also staff, staff birthdays get missed in most nursing homes. The big landmark life events, so-and-so had their 25th grandbaby, <laughs> or someone just came to the meeting they've never come before, or someone looks so pretty today, or handsome today, just any reason to celebrate. And the best community meeting I ever saw many years ago in Colorado, um, I'll just tell you briefly, it was so well done. They did celebrate staff and resident birthdays, you know, other events. They gave announcements. They talked about upcoming events. In fact, it happened to be September many years ago, I think 2003. And um, this was the moment for me as a surveyor. They welcomed me. They, you know, they were glad I was there as a visitor. And then um, I was an activity director before surveying. And they asked all the people there, the residents in particular, is there anyone who would like to help um, decorate for October and Halloween coming up? It was quiet. I was like, hmm, okay. 
And then slowly then, oh, yes, yes. And there was a woman, a resident way in the back who raised her hand. And it meant so much to me because I wasn't always so good at asking who wanted to help do more around the building. Residents are bored. They need things to do that are meaningful to them. Even though we're, plan we're paid to plan, it's the worst thing in the world to plan without the people who actually live there. So I love teaching that as well. And they did a good job of this. Um, they had a young maintenance guy tell a joke every time. Something I learned about that was he then had a new identity, not just the maintenance guy, but also the joke teller. They gave residents the microphone and new staff, new residents and new staff, the microphone. And you're invited to introduce yourself. Oh, that is community building, you know? Um, also, they announced who was moving and who was even dying. And yes, they got permission. I like to remind people, um, HIPAA says you can't unless you have permission, which means you can <laughs> if you have permission. And that's what homes do when they do this, this project or this practice. And to, to hear an administrator say, Mr. Smith is dying. And if you haven't had a chance to say goodbye, you better go after this meeting. <laughs> that drew me to tears. It was like the most meaningful thing I'd ever seen. They also reviewed a policy at every single community meeting. Brilliant. And it was about pressure ulcers. And they said, hey, residents, you might know them as bed sores. We call them pressure sores, pressure ulcers. We don't want you to get any. So this is why we sometimes invite you to lay down or to get up or to drink more, eat more, protein, et cetera. They just review policies every single meeting, an open forum. And then a, in their culture, a woman who lived there got the mic and closed the meeting by reading a devotion. Then that idea grew in the state of Colorado and this home ended up doing a daily meeting twice a day, once in English, once in Spanish. They, they became famous for including residents and staff on bigger decisions, including budget, including products, what juice to buy, <laughs> how much does this one cost, this one. Um, one year they told the surveyor during survey, we run this place. <laughs> I love to remind nursing home team, man, if, if, if residents tell surveyors they run the place, that is a good survey and surveyor will go, survey will go quicker for you. And now they went, you know, years ago when they did daily community meetings and then they went to have resident council, there was nothing to talk about because they're talking about things every day. In fact, if a grievance is filled out today, it'll be talked about tomorrow morning. Not the private information, but the global. Has this happened to anyone else? You're supposed to do that. And so they're actually dealing with issues in real time and it is fabulous. So back to that care and life and what I've been saying about life, I wanna show you something. What's it called? Independent, what? Independent living. And then you need more assistance. What's it called? What's it called? Assisted living. And then you need more what? Care. And what's it called? Long-term care. And when someone else did this many years ago, ready? Here's the kicker. Where did the living go? This is a problem, everyone. And every single one of us could do something about it. And I challenge us to try to talk more about the life and the living than just the care. The care is a part of that, but the life someone's living gets lost. And so some of the leverages, culture change uh, practices um, to, to meet this regulation is the daily community meeting. If, if homes aren't doing that, another one is to do a neighborhood council. 
neighborhoods, we instead of units, we've named them neighborhoods. It's more what they are. And so, you know, the nurse that works on that neighborhood comes to that neighborhood meeting and it makes sense. And more residents tend to come when it happens to be about their neighborhood. Um, you could have neighborhood councils as well as a like a resident representative council. I've seen that. Uh, you mentioned family council. Bridget, thank you for being in the family council. Um, if homes don't have them, we really encourage them to get them. If you represent a home that doesn't have one, most nursing homes want to have one, maybe not all, but it's a very positive thing. And then the same idea can also be applied to considering an employee council where employees have a place to talk about their needs, desires, et cetera. All right, my favorite topic, resident under resident rights, under respect and dignity, uh, CMS also has brought up language. There's a lot of institutional language in institutions, have you noticed? <laughs> and I'd love to know what words great on you, uh, what words you wish you could change. And I'm gonna give you a short list of mine, okay? And so what it first says in the reg is that we should avoid labels such as feeders and walkers. Oh, breaks my heart. If you look up feeder in the dictionary, you're gonna find things like bird feeder, bottom fish feeder. Uh, the one that hurts me the most is I, I've heard it on the radio, the, the, the cows and the pigs, the feeders went for this much money today. And so it's sad to me that we would ever, ever label beautiful older people, anything, let alone feeder. And watch this. Um, if, if anyone is the feeder, you know who it really is? Is the person doing the feeding. So not only is it undignified, but it is grammatically incorrect. Uh, then we've labeled people with everything, you name it, we've labeled them, the walker, the complainer, the wetter, the isolator, the screamer, the frequent faller. Sometimes they refer to residents who are the frequent fallers are repeat offenders because they, they're the ones falling more than others. I, I stop people, I stop them. <laughs> I'm like, let's think about what, what's being said here. Um, so that's out of the regs. And I just want to give you some words to consider in your work because you are leaders of trying to make change and home and bring life, right? And so notice the word I've been avoiding in all, the, all these regs I've shown you is the word facility. And here's why. Real people, think of your real life, your real home and neighborhood. Real people don't live in facilities. It's not normal. It's not, doesn't match up. Real people live in homes and we live in communities. And so one nursing home is a community unto itself. Why? Because there's people that live there, people that work there, people that come and go from there. That is a community. Um, so maybe you notice those of us that have learned a lot about this, we don't say that word. In fact, um, it's sort of become, you know, in fun known as the F word. <laughs> So if you like that, if that's in your personality, you can have fun with that and try to catch yourself to not say the F word. See, because every time we just keep saying facility, my facility, our facility, well, he's moving to another facility, we just perpetuate institution. But when we use words like, oh, he's getting to move to this home or that community, in this community, in this nursing home, we do this, and the F word is gone, it is more normal and it's softer. Um, another one, you know, I hear patient a lot still, 
In 87, resident was chosen to try to get rid of patient because the word patient is very passive. It means stuff is being done unto you. And so they picked resident to show that this person lives here, right? And then in our movement, we've even moved past resident. And um, we either just use the word person or individual, uh, and some communities have decided to refer to residents as neighbors. And see, those who live there, the people who live there, the ones we call residents, they really are neighbors to one another. They maybe aren't our neighbor, but we don't live there. So the word gets to represent who they are to one another. And then we just get used to their word. Isn't that interesting? And I've seen that take off in Colorado and Wyoming. Um, and then some, some groups use the word elder. And it's always, always, always only men in the highest of respects. It is. And we've also run into problems. <laughs> How many of you have run into like an older person who says, I don't want to be called an elder. Then we also have younger people living in nursing homes all the time. And so I've just personally learned that nobody gets offended when you just refer to people or the person or the individual or the neighbors. Uh, I mentioned neighborhood instead of unit. We're also trying to get rid of home-like even though that's all over the regs, no, we don't want a home-like environment. No, no, no. We got to keep going. We got to make it true home for people. Home, not home-like. Um, we're also trying to move away from these, these words that maybe don't mean the same thing to everybody. Activities, recreation, leisure. Instead, we're trying to really focus on engagement. I would add meaningful engagement is the focus. Some activity teams have renamed themselves to be the community life team, the community life coordinators, and now it's the community, community calendar instead of the activity calendar. The word intervention you will hear a lot in a nursing home, and it's harsh. It's heavy. We don't have to use such a heavy word. If you think of intervention, what is an intervention? Someone, there's a drug addiction or alcohol, and the family is having to make a big, hard decision to almost you know, almost kidnap someone for their, for their health, for their life state, right? It's a hard, big word. We don't have to use it. It's harsh. And I think what we actually mean every time we say intervention is the idea of approach. You take a different approach with Fred than you do. You take different approaches with Sally. So on the care plan, what they really are, are approaches, not interventions. And the term intervention is very institutional. It always implies there's something wrong or something bad. Police have to intervene when something bad is happening, right? And then I mentioned we're trying to get rid of behaviors. You know, we all have behaviors all the time. But the word, oh, she's having a behavior, has kind of morphed into, oh, she's bad. Oh, she is a behavior. Oh, she's a problem. And so leaders have taught us, you know, any one of us could be crabby. That's a behavior but what am I trying to communicate with my behavior? So they, so they talk about what's the message or what's the communication or what's the unmet need. And then you get down to, Oh, maybe she's hungry, tired, you know, etc. <laughs> How do you like non-compliant everyone? Now, this is very interesting to me. We tend to say the resident is non-compliant and it often has to do with the physician order often for a diet. And how many of us are not going to want to follow what the doctor tells us to do? It's pretty common. And you see, whenever you run into the term non-compliant now, you can consider it a red flag. And we are, as a movement, and the, it's a red flag, 
pointing out to all of us that there's actually a choice that someone's wanting to make, not eat that food <laughs> and eat this other food. And we're not giving them their choice. And I just showed you a whole bunch of choice regulations. The resident has the right to make choices about things that are important to them, right? And so now who's non-compliant? Look at that. The nursing home ends up being non-compliant with the regulations to honor choice. And the term non-compliant gives it away. So ironic. Um, we often use a harsh word as well in an institution. Refuse. She refused her bath. She refused to eat. She refused to go to the activity. And it makes the person as if they're bad, right? And so trying to encourage people not to use that. And instead, at the very least, to use the term decline. When someone declines, um, right in the word, it implies they actually had a choice. It's a much better word. Uh, here's another funny one. People had to, <laughs> a lot of times someone might say, I had to work the floor last night, or I got to go up to the floor. Um, she's working the floor. And if you, you know, parse it out, like, what are we talking about here? And we're just trying to be advocates for let's say what, what is actually meant. And so maybe what was meant was they worked with residents. If it was a nurse, they probably passed meds. And working the floor sort of sounds like a janitor. You know, it's just odd language. I mentioned instead of frontline, direct care or hands-on. Um, beds get a lot of attention in this business, which breaks my heart. That's a hundred bed facility. No, actually it's a home to up to a hundred people. And today maybe 90 live there or whatever. I mentioned person first language. You can learn a lot more about it if you want. Um, instead of saying, you know, the diabetic, we would say, hey, this is Kathy. There's a whole bunch of things about her, one of which, oh, she has diabetes or has dementia. Um, instead of the dementia residents, ooh, the dementia patients. Ooh. Um, so person first, even with diagnoses, even though we might be used to hearing diabetic, it doesn't sound wrong. It, it actually ends up being a label and people from the, the intellectual, um, oh boy, disability. I might even be using old language there uh, from that arena. They're the ones that have taught us person first, always put the person first. Don't smoosh them together with their diagnosis. So Kathy, who has diabetes, you know, um, Bob, who has uh paraplegia rather than the paraplegic the the ic at the end of a word often shows us that's a label um i think i mentioned did i or maybe that was another call today sorry people move in to homes and they move out of homes how many of you were admitted to the house you live in and discharged from the last house you live in another one you could help people in the general public we don't put mom in a nursing home and we don't place anyone you place things and you put things on a shelf. We, we helped mom move in to a nursing home. Um, and not everyone moves in, right? They're not residents, right? They're there for a short stay. And in your home, it's your home, people come and go. And so it's still home for the people who live there, the nursing home. And some people come and go and we're calling them guests, like rehab guests. Uh, <laughs> this will sound like a joke, it's a true story. One person who lived in the nursing home, a man, overheard staff talking about another person who lived in the nursing home, a woman, who eloped. And this man said, hey, I didn't even know she was dating. <laughs> and to me, it proves the point. Let's use normal words. 
we tend to say they eloped. What, what are we talking about? Um, if she left the building, let's just say that. And then it gets even worse. Sometimes we say she escaped. What does that say? How many of you have heard people living in nursing homes say, I'm an inmate, or it feels like prison? At the very least, let's avoid the language, right? And then what really expires, everybody? I'd love to ask you, what really expires? <laughs> Milk. And so guess what? Older people don't tend to have problems saying that someone died. So that's an interesting example. And then I love also pointing out that to me, we don't work in an industry. I learned that from someone else. You know, if you think of the word industry, it tends to mean manufacturing, that kind of thing. And we work with beautiful people. So I myself have chosen not to call it the long-term care industry. You could call it the long-term care field or profession or something like that, services. Okay, moving along in the regulations. I'm sure somewhere along the way, you've heard of highest practicable level of well-being. This is all over the regs. I should do a word search to find out how many times this is mentioned. It is everywhere in nursing services, social services, activities, quality of life, quality of care. I could have showed you, don't have time. But the strongest place is here under comprehensive person-centered care planning. So not only is it mentioned everywhere, Here's where it gets the most detailed. Each care plan must describe the services that are to be furnished to attain or maintain the resident's highest practicable physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being. Isn't that gorgeous? Isn't that beautiful? Guess what? Nobody's doing it. Nobody care plans it and nobody surveys it. So if you can help bring attention to this beautiful concept, let me teach you a little bit more. You know, the word practical is the one we hear more, probably more familiar with. I've heard people, even when they mean practicable, this one comes out. <laughs> it's just because we're more used to it. So we all kind of know what practical means, what its capability, a person's capability based on the resources we have available to support their abilities, their potential, and address their limitations. Sadly, this is the scenario where nursing homes say, oh, we don't have time. And we don't have staff. And that's actually not the one they're supposed to be doing. And they're supposed to be doing this. That requirement, as you know, is for the nursing home. They're supposed to help each resident reach, attain, or maintain their highest practicable. What does that mean? Innate capability based solely on the individual and their abilities, their limitations, their potential, but it's independent of external limitations. So if someone can walk, they're supposed to be walking. We're supposed to be doing all we can to help them walk rather than say, oh, we don't have time. It's not practical, right? And let me show you, you know, it's kind of a neat way to remember this. The word able is right in there. So whatever they're able to do, that's what they're supposed to do. If someone can feed themselves, even though it takes longer, they should be. They can walk, even though it takes longer, they should be. Um, those are just two examples. Now, physical, mental, and psychosocial. See, they never get just drawn out individually. And I want to share something special with you. Um, I know this is kind of a, it shouldn't be new, but most people don't know about this. And I, this is raw footage of talking to a person who lives in a nursing home where I consult and you'll see, I have his permission. Plus he's passed away. Um, and this is raw trying to talk about these three levels of well-being with someone who lives in a nursing home. And I want to share it with you. Because I recommend that we all start to do this. We try to get at what it is for each person. So, well, 
Hi, John. Forgive me. I, I didn't mean to not show myself. I just didn't know how to do the Zoom stuff. So you see him, but not me. I, I apologize. Oops. Here we go. Get that on your care plan. Mm-hmm. Well, hi, John. This is Carmen. Can you hear me? Yeah. And John, is it okay if I record you on the video? Yes. Thank you. Now, John, there's some there's a concept in the federal regulations for people living in nursing homes. And it's it's called highest practicable level of well-being. So what a person is most able to do. And the nursing home is supposed to help a person reach their highest practicable. And then they divide it into three things, physical well-being, mental well-being, and psychosocial well-being. And I just wondered, John, I know you're a brilliant man, and I just wondered, what would you say your highest practicable physical well-being is right now? What are you most capable of physically? I don't know how to answer that. That's okay. Um, Maybe Susie can help. Like, are you able to walk? Yeah. Okay, great. Now, so, so John, we're trying to help team members figure out what a person is most capable of doing. And then our job is to help them do that. So could you be walking more often? I'm just curious. Yes. Okay. So see, that's a good example. Maybe on your care plan, it would say, you know, that you are capable of walking and you would like to walk more and you would like to hold on to the ability to walk. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Now let's try, let's try maybe a harder subject. I'm going to ask you about mental well-being but then I'm also going to ask you about psychosocial well-being. And you get to decide how to answer. So what do you think, what would you say your highest practicable mental well-being is? Once again, I'm not sure how to answer that. It's okay. It's kind of a different concept, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah, so John, you are very smart, I have noticed. And so your your highest practicable mental well-being is probably higher than most people think of a person living in a nursing home. Would you agree? Yeah. Uh-huh. In fact, I heard that you have an interest in inventing uh, a, something to do with your pendant that it would be able to figure out exactly the kind of help someone needs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So see, that's an example. Let's say, you know, I come to the care plan because that's supposed to reflect who you are and your care plan might say that you have an interest in inventing uh, a, a new pendant 
And then our job would be to help you figure out how to do that. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And in fact, I want you to know, I talked to the team just um, the, this, this week. I've talked to your team and, and someone brought that up. One of your caregivers knew that, one of the Shabazz. And then we let the administrator know. And we're all very excited to see if we can help your idea grow. Is that okay? Okay. Wonderful. And then one more, you know, if, if you can help me figure this out, tr try to answer, um, what do you think your highest practicable level of psychosocial well-being is and maybe Susie can help because she's good at stuff like this too what do you think <laughs> how to say and do you feel like you have enough people to talk to and interact with yeah. that are on the same level with you yeah. so does it start to feel a little lonely yes yeah okay okay is that kind of what you meant Carmen kind of um let's keep trying so if we try to identify what your highest practicable level of psychosocial well-being is. Uh, let me take a stab at this. Could it be that you feel you could be socializing more with, with people, particularly those who could um, have these kinds of conversations with you? Is that a fair stab at it? Yes. Okay. And then again, we would kind of try to get that on your care plan. Maybe it would say introduce John to other people. You know, maybe they live there, maybe they work there, maybe it's someone in the community that that we start to feel you might uh, have a connection with. Is that fair to say? That's fair. Okay. Oh my gosh! See, this is this is it, John. That's what I wanted to explore with you. Um, Susie, do you have any thoughts on any of that? Just curious. I just am concerned that John doesn't have enough opportunities to, um, you know, that whole concept of use it or lose it. Yes. And I see that he's not using his, his brilliance as much as he could. Yes. And so I'm seeing he's tending to isolate a little bit more yes. and, um, you know that that's the desire is decreasing a little bit. He's oh, I don't dear. want him to give up on his brilliance because right. it's there. Right. It just needs an outlet, and yes. I'm worried that there isn't one here. Okay. Now, so we just identified a gap, but now I need your help. How do you feel we could be filling the gap better? You know, what's the what's the flip side? What are your ideas? What do you yearn for, John? What category? Um, any or all? You know, yeah, any of it. But you know, like, do you have ideas on how to solve the problem? That's kind of the the flip side question. Do I have a way to solve the problem? Yeah. What would yeah. your ideas be to solve the problem? One thought that occurred to me was uh, put people together by age. Okay. Sure. Sure. And uh, see if you can make, make you know, like a connection there. Uh-huh. Yes. 
Good, good idea, John. How about this? Have you met people from the other houses yet? No. And and probably that's because of the, you know, pandemic. But yeah. once things open up, that that too could be a, a new avenue for you. Yeah. And I'll make sure that that gets passed on. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, this was exactly what I was kind of looking for. And so, John, the beauty is you just helped me show people that it's not that hard to have this discussion with people living in nursing homes. And then because I also consult where you live, I can pass on these ideas to all the right people. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. And I'll let you go. I know you get tired. Okay. But yeah, I was going to say right now I'm 20 years younger than most of the people here. Okay. Wow. Okay. So you're kind of feeling that, aren't you? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't realize that. Thank you. Well, great. We'll, we'll get a working on it. Okay. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, Carmen. Well, let's do it again maybe sometime. So I got a text following this that said, you just made this fine man feel so proud and needed. Thank you. Everyone needs to feel like they can contribute. And like I said, he passed away maybe a month or two after that. But I did share that on purpose with you, everyone. I love for people to actually start talking more about these three areas of well-being. And I'm going to be done in about three minutes. Trust me. I'm going to take questions. My time's almost up. And um, so I've just given you some examples um, on these slides. Uh, this woman <laughs> uh, actually took a trip to Disney World and her goal, because she wanted to go down Splash Mountain, she walked again. Like there's highest practicable physical level of well-being. Um, and then um, some examples on mental well-being and uh, some examples on psychosocial. I just like giving examples to give people the idea. Um, and if you didn't know, check this out. Did you know that failure to help a resident reach highest practicable is actually considered actual harm, not potential for harm? Um, and then another neat story is a woman who moved to a small nursing home um, uh, ended up feeding herself and talking again and had not done that for like six months. And so I like to call that the, sadly, the power of the institution can shut people down, but the more we create true home, normalcy, um, then there's the power in home itself. Quality of life, uh, CMS now says, is a fundamental principle applying to all care and services. They never said that before. There's highest practical again, and check this out, non-compliance identifies outcomes which rise to the level of immediate jeopardy and reflect pervasive disregard for quality of life and can include cumulative effect of non-compliance of other regulatory tags on one or more residents. They never said that before about quality of life. So I just in, in, encourage people not to let that get missed. And last but not least, I just wanna show you that CMS also has now included what are known as the seven domains of well-being. So under the intent of activities to create opportunities to have a meaningful life by supporting the domains of well-being, which are security, autonomy, growth, connectedness, identity, joy, and meaning. And they are, um, I don't have time, but in the handout, um, oh yeah, I took it out. <laughs> There's a lot more I could say. And last but not least, I got two quotes here. Um, 
that I thought might interest you. A former Oregon State Survey Agency director said, culture change has taught us it can be different. And so it causes us to go even harder after the poor performers. And in Canada, they're known as saying, because of culture change, we expect more now. And I really wish that was uh, the same in our country. So I am ready to take questions and ideas, and then I can just give you another minute to close, if I may, after that. Carmen, thanks so much. This is Richard. Can people hear me? Can you hear me, yeah. Carmen? Yeah. Oh, great. So um, we have a few questions, which I'll be reading. So Sharon Wallace uh, asked, how can we change the culture when the nursing homes are short-staffed? We keep having outbreaks of COVID where I am with residents, patients, and even staff members. CNAs most of the time have at least 10 to 15 patients, residents under their care, under the care of one CNA. I am in a nursing home in upstate New York. We are 45 minutes north of New York City. Well, guys, to be honest, it could be done, but it, it needs the leadership. You know, it, it, it's not going to be able to come from, uh, let's say, CNAs maybe want to do this, but they can barely breathe. I get that. So in my, in my career, um, it really comes from leadership. And the good news is I've heard leaders say, you know, I realize you can't stop doing culture change. It's, you know, it's. Ideally, it's embedded. And if homes were working on it already, it probably would have a, an even better, it would be helpful during a pandemic. Um, but maybe not the exact time to start it, right? So, <laughs> it's a fair question. Thanks, Carmen. Uh, the next question is from uh, James Burke, or maybe John Burke. Um, do you think the use of shifts for care workers in the nursing home perpetuates the breach of residents' rights? Nursing homes use this culture, which tends to eliminate the resident's ability to direct their care. Yeah, you mean the use of typical shifts? Is that what it's meant? Yeah. It sounds like, yeah. So. You know, brilliant question, guys. You know why? I got a great story real quick. Uh, one home stopped waking people up and watched what happened naturally. And not every resident woke up at 6 a.m. Surprise, right? And now staff are looking at each other at 6 a.m. going, there's nothing to do. And so it impacted staff's lives as well positively and people got to start saying hey if i could come in later i could take my own kids to daycare instead of taking them to my mom first you know and so it's it's a beautiful question in our movement we've learned that if you follow the person follow the individual go with their schedules it does end up even being better for the people who work there and i think it's a very good point if it, it's sort of like when we make residents follow the institutional schedule we're also making staff follow these shifts. Um, some homes have done away with them and they're more flexible and open and, and many have not, <laughs> but it can be done. Thanks, Carmen. And then one more question from Janine Ferrari. Can a family council request meeting with the Department of Health surveyor? Do we have that right? Yes, yes, yes. You guys think of health department people. Um, one of my mentors always said we are civil servants. And civil servants can't tell you that they can't have a meeting with you. Take advantage of that. Yes, yes, yes. Call for meetings with surveyors. It's a very good idea. Thank you. Um, thanks very much, Carmen. So that's it for the questions we have. I think you wanted to say yeah. a few words yeah. before we yeah. finish. I'll just finish right now. So a couple of resources. This is a free one. If you get excited about language, we did a white paper, The Power of Language to Create Culture. 
It's at my website and the Pioneer Network. Some other resources on language, if that interests you. If I can be helpful, I love this stuff. I love teaching it. Um, I've done a lot of books, as was said, and these are all my topics, if anything you know interests you. Um, and I have videos, really inexpensive pay-per-view. Here's a free one. We did it before Christmas last year, so it's pretty fitting for now if you want to check it out. I also have something free I call the Culture Change Minute. If you'd like to check it out, we'd love your feedback. And let's just close with some takeaways. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And, and remember the language of promoting and protecting rights and nursing homes themselves are supposed to do it. Consider these ideas of what we call high involvement, the daily community, you know, uh, talking about grievances from yesterday, having a, getting to weigh in on what juice to purchase. Oh my gosh. Um, sleep. If you have any way of encouraging sleep to actually be honored, truly your own circadian rhythm, it's healthy, it's choice. They're supposed to do it. Um, I have fun, kind of a pun saying, get the word out, you know, if language kind of uh, gets you excited, it's just an entryway into culture change, costs no money, it creates culture. Uh, maybe start talking more about preferences than problems. Most nurse, most care plans kind of revolve around problems. We shouldn't do that. We should revolve around the individual's preferences. And when we do that, ironically, it prevents the problems, right? Um, think of these regs as notice how we're supposed to be more individual, less generic. Most of what we do is generic. Uh, I didn't even get to this. CMS mentions the residence goal. So singular, the residence goals. Um, 153 times it was zero in the old regs. So we are supposed to be asking residents what their goals are. Maybe you could help us make that happen. Um, let's go beyond these minimal requirements. I encourage people to think outside the MDS box. That's the assessment, the minimum data set that drives their care planning, but they can go way beyond that to get to know people better, serve them better. Um, I said a lot about highest practicable. Please help us you know, shift a little more to the life and the living that includes good clinical care, but care can't just be the only focus Maybe become a culture change advocate. We could use you. We now all know it can be different. So let's keep shooting for that. Thank you so much for having me and all that you do. Carmen, that was really wonderful. And I learned so much. And I'm sure others did as well. But it was really um, uh, so positive and, and I think so valuable. So, so thank you very much. I'm going to um, turn it over to Deb Trahaski to, um, to wrap things up. Just before I do that, uh, a lot of the things um, that Carmen talked about we have resources on our website. We have fact sheets on care planning and fact sheets on resident rights. Um, we have a new um, a new guide that we just put out last week or the week before on the state operations manual that Carmen was talking about. And we actually have a primer that we did um, about three years ago now, but we've recently updated it on uh, essential resident rights and everything is free and on our website, nursinghome411.org. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Deb. So thank you, everyone, for joining. Deb? Thank you, Richard. Uh, it's been such a wonderful program this evening that I don't want it to end, but we are at that point. Um, so I want to, again, say thank you to Ms. James. Thank you to Carmen Bowman. Thank you to Bridget St. John for all making this a truly memorable evening. Thank you to each of you for attending. And another thank you to our generous sponsors. We wish everyone a good evening, stay safe, 
And we hope to see you in person at next year's reception. Good night.